we'll see. Um, we're at the point of the uh, message. I am still trying to get used to uh, speaking without looking at people in the face. Uh, not an easy, not an easy thing to do. But we'll see what we can do about that. Uh, I've been doing a series on uh, eschatology, and the next installment was supposed to be the gospel. And because the gospel is so tied to the message of the resurrection, as was read in 1 Corinthians, and the empty tomb, I really consider just doing that sermon this morning. Uh, But the context of our worship, both Jews and Christians in this week of having to be separated and isolated and apart from each other in that context, uh, made me think I wanted to address the resurrection in the context of this difficulty, this plague that we're facing. Uh, This is the first time in my lifetime that I recall ever there was even a hint of not celebrating resurrection together. And I was at a time when there were a lot of sunrise services uh, and people would go to those and then they would have pancake breakfast and then they would uh, have the worship morning worship service and then there would be a lunch. I mean, it was just a, a major celebration. And this is this is somewhat different. Uh, while we are in our households and we have our uh, household members, including pets, to be part of this, it's really different. So I've entitled this message, The Living and the Dead, and I based it on Romans chapter 14, uh, verses 7 through 9. So I'd like you to turn with me to Romans uh, 14, 7 through 9. And uh, we'll take a look at that. I want to talk about this. Uh, and we'll stay pretty much on this text. I will move to another text right before the end. In Romans 14, Paul says, None of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. To this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Interesting passage. And this passage has actually got a context. And the context of this statement by the Apostle is the way in which we believers are to deal with each other's conscience. He's talking about not defiling or bothering or hurting or wounding uh, a weaker brother's conscience in terms of what is believed and what is practiced. But... While this is an important part of loving one another, which is the commandment that Jesus gave the night before he suffered, the principle actually goes far beyond just that immediate context to having an eternal perspective that we as believers should have in all aspects of our life. So the the apostle says, we do not live for ourselves. What he means is, our life is not our own. We've been bought with a price. We've been crucified with Christ, yet we live. But not I, as Paul says, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The life that we have is now one of faith and trusting the Son of God. We have become his. We are his by creation. 
We are his by redemption. We are his by lordship. We are his body. We are his people. We are his manifestation in the world. We become his hands and his feet and his mouth to speak to people in this world the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not to live for ourselves. Now this is difficult for those of us who grew up in the American culture because Americans tend to live for themselves and when they make it, then they say, I'm going to give back. So you hear a lot of this about people donating and people doing things. They're giving back because America has given to me. That is not our perspective. Our perspective is we have been bought with a price. We are to glorify God in our body, which is his. He now is Lord of us in that context. Now, what I've said just now is actually the theme of Lent. So whether you observed Lent by donning ashes on the forehead or a cross, you were focused on dying to self and living to God. That's also the theme of our baptism in Romans 6. The scripture says, as many of us as were baptized, were baptized into his death, that we may live a newness of life. There is a transition that has gone on in our confession, in our conversion, in our walk of faith. And so we are raised to walk in newness of life, as we say at every baptism. So the Christian life is not a start over in this world. This is not our message. Our message is not Jesus came uh, and so we want you to start over. It's actually a transition to die in this world and live towards the next world. Paul says that we are to reckon ourselves dead unto the flesh and to this world and alive unto Christ. We don't we no longer follow the concerns and the passions and the direction of this world. This is a rejection of the life we would have had with God with ourselves to a life that we have now with God and that we will have in the future with God. We are embracing that life to come and we are beginning that process Even now, while we're in this world, therefore we are in this world, but not of it. Too often, with good intentions, we misrepresent the gospel. It is not to be, as some make it, a change agent for this world. The gospel is not here to change the world. This is not the week that changed the world. This is the week that ushered in the new world that we can come into having left that world. Okay? It's important that our message not be things go better with Jesus. That's not, he's not an additive to this life. To make this life better and to make us successful in this life and to make everything rosy in this life, that is not the gospel. He is about a radical shift from this life to the life to come. A life that requires a renewal, more than a renewal, it requires our death. Both figuratively, death to self, and actual, we are not getting out of this world and this life 
alive. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And therefore, there is nothing in this life except facing death. But beyond this life, there is a hope, and that hope ties into resurrection. Both his, which is the first fruits, and ours, which is in type now, but in fullness at his coming. And therefore, we need to talk about this transition. So Paul says we don't live for ourselves. That makes sense. I get the idea that I'm to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. But he also says that we do not die for ourselves. The death we die is not for us. That's odd. Paul says that if we die, we die for the Lord. How do we die for the Lord? The church has understood this idea of living and yet being dead to the world and that death being for the Lord, meaning that now the life that we live is for the Lord. Because it's not our life, it's the life of the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. The word martyr is what the church has understood this to mean. And the word martyrdom or martyr comes from a Greek word, uh, martis, which means a witness. doesn't mean somebody who passes on information. It actually means someone who can testify about facts, which he has direct knowledge of and can give testimony of those facts. We began that last night when we said, I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, and I confess that he is Lord. We took on the role of a witness, a martyr in that sense. We live and we die for the Lord because he is our life. So how does this work? Well, the church has understood this in three ways. In fact, there have been historically a sense of three types of martyrs, three types of witnesses who bear testimony to the resurrection of Jesus because his life is in us. The first one is what is called red martyrs. Those are the people who die for the faith. These are the ones that we generally think of when we use the term martyr in the, in the English sense. These saints are faithful even in death to their identification with the Lord. Uh, and his death and resurrection. Some of them suffer extreme pain as they are tortured to death, much in the way our Lord was. And others simply are killed because of their testimony, just gotten rid of. But either way, their life and their death is for the Lord as a testimony in anticipation of their resurrection because of his resurrection. The other type of martyr, the second type, is called white martyrs. White martyrs are those who suffer because of their testimony in Christ, but they are not killed. In other words, their blood is not spilled to the point of death. Some of these are imprisoned. Others are shunned by family or friends or community. Still, others are deprived of acceptance by their friends and their family in any sense, uh, as if you are dead to them. Alive to Christ, but dead to them. 
these individuals are persecuted because they have accepted that their life must be lived for the Lord, and that message is rejected by others. So we have red martyrs, and we have white martyrs. There is a third type that I think is not well understood. In fact, a lot of people only talk about the red and white martyrs. The third type of martyr are green martyrs. Green martyrs are those who live a committed life of surrender and communion with the Lord. Now, this originally began with the hermits, the ones who separated themselves uh, from everybody and just worshiped the Lord. And it also included those who gave their entire life to prayer. There was a time in the Middle Ages when people would vow to give themselves totally to worship uh, prayer. They were actually walled up in cells in the sides of the sanctuaries with just a door for food and uh, a chamber pot to go through, and they spent all of their time in prayer and in adoration of the Lord and in um, uh, and in, in uh, worship. <clears throat> but this really is not about that kind of extreme. It's really those who die daily to self in an attempt to live for God. To live for God in holiness as we love Him. To live for God in righteousness as we love our fellow man, our neighbor. And to live with God in unity by our love of one another, our fellow believers. Those three great commandments, to love God, to love our neighbor, and to love one another, is what we're doing. I'm not going to live my life as I feel like it. I'm not going to live my life as I want to. not going to live my life to get ahead or be successful or to be famous or to be well thought of. I'm going to live my life in devotion to the one who died and rose for me, that his life would be manifest in me. Those green martyrs are those who live a, a life of faith that trusts in the Lord, a lifestyle of humble obedience to God's will as expressed in the commandments, and a care of others as being the body of Christ in ministry. In other words, we don't isolate ourselves. We actually engage as the body of Christ, ministering beyond the body of Christ to those who need to hear the gospel that they may escape this world and come into the world to come. These are not killed for their faith. They may not even suffer persecution, but they must engage in self-denial and hold themselves to follow the Lord. Now here's the truth. We're all, in some sense, uh, have a calling to be witnesses or martyrs. We do not choose the martyrdom that will be our ultimate death. The path is the same. It's obedience to the Lord and trusting in Him and acting out of His gifting and, and commandments in our lives. We may simply be faithful to Him up until the time of our natural death. And I have seen many, many saints who simply stayed faithful to God in their love of Him, in their obedience to Him, in their worship of Him, right up unto their natural death. Or you may become subject to persecution and enter into the sufferings of the Lord, as Paul talks about that. And perhaps you will suffer death 
at the hands of those who would be the enemy of the Lord, and they would kill you. Now Paul <coughs> believed that being dead and with the Lord was better for him. And as I get older, I, I understand more what Paul's talking about. But he also knew that to be alive and in the body and serving other believers and witnessing to the world was more important for them. And if you're living a life, not for yourself, but for others, then that's what you'll do. So Paul clearly was not living for himself. So he says in this text that we read, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For, for this purpose, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. In some sense, we are both the dead and the living. So what's, up, what's the resurrection part of this? The celebration of the resurrection should have more meaning to us as martyrs, as witnesses, because our life now testifies that Jesus died and he rose to establish that death itself can be conquered. So we need to look at another passage. I'd like you, if you have your Bibles, to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll pick it up at verse 19. Paul says this, If we have hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. The Christian life is not about this life. And if our hope is that things will get better in this life, we'll become a success, we'll become faithful, we'll become all of this stuff because of this worldliness, we're to be pitied because that's not going to happen. For as in Adam, he says, since by, uh, I'm sorry, let me pick this up. We're to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. We saw that the firstfruits is the guarantee of the later harvest. So when Christ rose from the dead as the firstfruits, that started and broke through death so that later we will break through death. We are the second one in that order, those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that is going to be abolished is death. The last enemy is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is not, he is accepting the one who put all things in subjection to him. That is God the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. That is powerful. And therefore, what he's telling us is that this hope is not in this life. He overcame death so that ultimately we will overcome death. 
We overcome it figuratively now by not living in this life, but living the life to come. But we will ultimately live in that one because if our hope is simply in this life, it's there's nothing. But our hope is not of this life. And therefore, nothing in this life can separate us from God's love in Christ. Because he has been raised, we too will be raised. But this last enemy, death, has to be abolished. It's going to happen in stages. It began with the celebration of the first fruits. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, whether we are alive or dead, we will be raised at his coming. Death cannot prevent our victory. So if we die before the Lord comes, that will not prevent us from being part of that resurrection. In fact, we will be first in that resurrection. Paul assures us by the word of the Lord that those who sleep in death will be raised first, and we which are alive and remain will be caught up to be with them in the Lord and into the kingdom. The one who is the resurrection and the life said that if we were dead, we will live again. And if we are alive, we will never die. He was talking about that second coming. That is our promise from God. That is our blessed hope. That is the focus of our attention to not live in this life, but to live toward the next one. And we can face anything in this life because we are more than conquerors through the one who loved us, as Romans 8 says. Now, by the way, there's a part of Romans 8 that never gets mentioned. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter every day. It's wonderful to be the sheep of God, but you know what sheep are for? They're for being killed. And in that sense, our death is not our death. It's a death for the Lord. Whether we die to self, whether we are tortured and punished, or whether we persecuted, or whether we die the death of a red martyr. Whatever that is, it is not our life, but the new life that we are following him. And so death cannot prevent our victory, and he gave us this blessed hope and this promise. Death has no victory, the scripture says, it has no sting. Uh, let me... Uh, Read the last part of uh, that First Corinthians passage where we pick it up um, in verse 51. Uh, well, 50. I tell you, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So to get into that kingdom of God that will be on earth when the Lord reigns, we can't be this way. We have to be resurrected, and that's why we are resurrected when he comes. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, death, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet, the shofar will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, we who are alive. When this perishable must put on imperishability, the mortal must put on immortality. And when that happens, then the saying will be completed, death is swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, because we couldn't keep the law, but what the law could not do, God did in sending his Son to condemn sin in the flesh and to ultimately resurrect that flesh so that it would be like his. So he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, he says, my brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not vain in the Lord. Death has no victory or sting for us because God gives us the victory as he was raised from the dead. We will be raised from the dead. So we can live a life dedicated to God in our obedience to how we raise our families, in our obedience to how we treat one another and how we love one another, how we care for our neighbor and how we show by our holiness that we are identified with God. Our holiness is only approximation in this life. Our righteousness is only approximation in this life. Our loving one another is only an approximation in this life. But when we are raised from the dead, we will see those in all their fullness. But we're practicing towards it now. So, we can be steadfast, unmovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, which is our task. Knowing that our toil, that word toil there, is this struggle. This is not easy. This this martyrdom stuff is not easy. It's not a matter of, oh, I just do it on the side. It's not a part-time job. It is the main task. All the other things, how we eat, how we drink, how we wear clothes, that's all secondary. And if we have those, we're to be content with those because our focus is to be beyond that. So, the resurrection is not just a doctrine. It's not a historical fact. It's the transforming power of God whereby we have died to this present world and have come alive in the world to come. Therefore, the virus is not our concern. We have to be careful. But it is not what we're focused on. We're focused on, and I'm, I've been watching the body of Christ do this. How do we minister in this context? How do we find a way to care for people and not just isolate ourselves? We're not becoming hermits. We're, we're finding new strategies for ministering to our families and to our congregations and beyond the congregation. That reality then is supposed to guide all that we say and all that we do because we are preparing to be revealed with him in the glory of the kingdom to come. What a great promise and what a great message the Lord has for us in that context. So I'm going to stop here. Um, let me say a prayer and then we'll do a Q&A.